False Bottom Girls guides listeners through the wonderful, yet sometimes confusing, world of beer. Hi, my name is Rachel Hudson, and I'm the co-owner and head brewer of Pilot Brewing Company in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm also an advanced Cicerone. Hi, I'm Jen Blair. I'm the Beer Quality and Education Manager for Orpheus Brewing in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am also an advanced Cicerone, and welcome to our podcast. Okay, welcome everyone to this episode of False Bottom Girls. You know what we haven't done in a while? That's Rachel. Oh, and that's Jen. Hi, Jen. Hi, Rachel. How's it going? Good. I was thinking about that the other day because, you know, when you listen to like a new podcast and you like it takes a while to kind of establish whose voice is whose and like, you know, kind of attach that image to like personalities and stuff. And I was like, at some point, we stopped introducing who we were. True. <laughs> the voice you are hearing you right mean you now don't belongs know? to Jen. Yes. <laughs> I, I have found a couple people I have met who initially know me from this podcast. And I'll be like, oh, hey, I'm Rachel. They're like, yeah, I recognize your voice. And I'm like, creep. Yeah. Creepy. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love you all. You're not creepy. Yeah. No, I talked to someone who one day too, who like when I said like, hello, was like, oh my God, you sound just like you do on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Like, good. I guess we have good recording amateur equipment. (laughs) (laughs) The power of technology these days. Right. Surprise, I really sound like this in real life. (laughs) (laughs) I made her use a uh, filter, voice filter, voiceover. Yeah, I have one of those voice modulators yeah. they use on the news. So Rachel also only just sees like a dark outline of me. <laughs> I um, actually don't even know what she looks like <laughs> anymore. <laughs> well, um, enough about I else. was trying to make a, a good bridge into um, today's topic from, from that dazzling start. It's the sounds of a monastery. Oh, okay. You know, or like, mm, that's me meditating. Mm. <laughs> and I'm, I'm making my hands into a pray, prayer sign for those that you can't see, which is everyone. Right. <laughs> I can so, see it. That's how. She's not. She's lying. Um, that's not did, what a prayer hand looks like. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't is this the emoji? <laughs> yeah. The, raising the, the one Raising the roof. That's right. what I thought it was for the longest time. And I think you can use it like interchangeably. I think it's like fine. If you use it as like, you're like, oh, I'm so excited. You know, it's like, fine. That's prayer or raise the roof. Like, it, it's like using no and no. You know, you know, like, like, no. I know, <laughs> like, like, I know, like K-N-O-W, like I know something versus like, no. You know. Okay. It's like, to, what's, that, what's that called when their word has, is spelled differently but has sounds the same a homonym yes like that with the emoji welcome to this <laughs> emoji vocabulary hour um just kidding we're talking about trappist deals today which, which vocabulary is a very big po- part of th- this discussion today true it is and we will there get we into go. exactly what that means there that is a the long connection. road to walk but we made it all right <laughs> no we can do it Yes, like Jen said, we are going to dive into Trappist ales. Um, I, I have said this before, and I typically, when I do these style uh, episodes, like to kind of dive in and follow BJCP guidelines from 
2015 because now they have a new set 2021 which we just talked about in our last episode and the only thing i'm going to mention about it is that in the bjcp style guidelines for 2015 they had a section called trappist sales and it includes trappist single belgian double belgian triple and belgian star uh, belgian dark strong ale the only change they have made is they are now calling trappist ale monastic say that word again monastic sorry they changed the name of the category they changed the name of the category to monastic and this is a big reason why vocabulary is going to be important and we will talk more about into that uh different that definition change later but um, i will say really quickly for people who are listening because rachel and i had this conversation uh right before we started recording and I know I've talked with a couple of other people about this. So the BJCP did come out with their 2021 style guidelines, like two days before the end of the year. Yeah. Um, but that's fine. It still counts. If you're studying for any kind of BJCP exam, these new guidelines don't go into effect until August 1st of 2022. And at the time we've recorded this, Cicerone hasn't indicated when they will put these new guidelines into effect, but really most of the updates are pretty minor. They shifted some styles around yeah. and they, they, I think maybe they moved some styles into, um, there were maybe in a historical category, like Gosa moved. Uh, I think Katharina Sauer moved. So they've moved some styles into other categories, but there hasn't been, it's not a major revamp the way it was from the 2008 to the 2015 guidelines. So don't worry, like you're not going to have to learn completely new beer styles. No, not maybe a couple, but not anything crazy. The categories largely don't change. They just shuffled things around, but those are available to download and print, but you will not need to worry about them for testing purposes for BJCP until August 1st. So you have several months. That's a good question I have for you since you are more involved in BJCP than I am. Do you know if that is like a true, like if you're signed up for a a test in June and you're signed up for a test in November, is that like a, a good deadline where they will make like an official switch? Like maybe in June, you don't need to know about Katharina Sauer, but in November, you probably need to know about Katharina. I mean, is that a fair argument, do you think? Or should you, if you are scheduled, should you probably reach out to BJCP yourself and double check? No, you don't have to. What will happen, and I'm looking now, I know that we, um, specifically, I don't even know if Katharina Sauer is something that gets tested, and it doesn't. I know you were just using that as an example, but um, that's in like the international style, so that wouldn't be tested anyway. Got it. But it. it is starting August 1st. 2021 guidelines are in full effect. So Got if it. you're, let's no say you're planning about to, it. yeah, you're planning to take a tasting exam in August or after you need to be studying the 2021 style guidelines. If you're planning to take any, any BJCP exam. So if you're signed yes. up, if you're planning to take your online exam, whatever you need to be studying after August, you need to be studying the 2021 guidelines. Um, and that's the same. If let's say you want to take your online exam in July, you're studying the 2015 guidelines. Got it. And then your tasting exam is in August. You're studying the 2021 guidelines. But ah, again, fantastic. They don't, they really don't. There's not a it's huge It's not going to be a change. huge difference. Yeah. yeah. Most of it is superficial and kind of stylistic in terms of the changes that they made. Um, so yeah. And we, um, and if you're studying for Cicerone, like Jen said, they don't really know anything. Yeah. Yet. Cicerone hasn't said so. anything yet, but when they do, it's, it's the same thing. I know between the time I took the certified exam and the advanced exam, they switched to the 2015 mm-hmm. guidelines. 
Uh, so yeah, they will also, it will be several, several months notice mm-hmm. before they change anything. So that's you, it won't be something where you walk in and you're surprised about yeah. what guidelines you should be using. Uh, but, but yeah, maybe in a future episode, since we went pretty ham on the BJCP guidelines a couple of episodes ago, uh, maybe in a future episode, we'll kind of go through what the changes actually are. Yeah. The guidelines. Maybe and we'll, we'll do that like closer to August. So when people are actually wondering sure. what has changed. And so like the uh, the point, you know, coming back to our style today is yes. that they did do a good change with changing Trappist ale category to monastic um, for vocabulary reasons. Mm-hmm. And when we talk the diff- talk about the difference between Abbey and Trappist beers, that will make more sense. But yes. yeah. let's go and ahead. That was a really good point that you made, Rachel, about yeah. that, uh, about the, that being confusing. So it was something that I hadn't well, thought about you know, until you pointed it out. And I was like, yeah, if you, if you are coming into this brand new and you don't know, like your, your Trappist, oh, yeah. you know, your Trappist monasteries, then that is really confusing to be like, wait, I thought that this was Trappist single. Why am but, I seeing St. Bernardus in this? I mean, and since we are kind of talking about it, like the specific example from BJCP 2015 guidelines is one of the comments under the Trappist styles says authentic Trappist versions tend to be drier than Abbey versions, which can be rather sweet and full bodied. And that is not true. That is 100% not true. We like Trappist and Abbey beers are not styles. They right. are uh, Trappist is in a, I'm going to say the word wrong again. <laughs> Appalachian. Appalachian, like the mountains. <laughs> right. Or maybe it's, a, maybe it's Appalachian. Appalachian. Yeah. Every time okay. I say like, I, yeah, every time I read it, I, in my mind, I'm like, this sounds like Appalachian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it has this protection. Trappist beers has a protection that has a logo that says we're an authentic Trappist product designated by these certain rules that we follow and given to us by this organization. And there even, there's even a logo for Abbey beers too. This says, you know, we're Abbey brewery, but the difference of Abbey's and Trappist is that Abbey doesn't follow the same rules as Trappist, although they might profit off of the marketing the way, the same way Trappist breweries would. And that's a little bit ahead of what I wanted to talk about, but right now, but I just wanted to point that out that the BJCP guidelines said that in 2015, but they did remove that from the 2021 version so which is good because there needs to be an understanding that trappist and abby's beers are don't have anything to do with how dry or sweet they are so in the new version of the guidelines rachel they did clarify that they said various terms have been used to describe these beers but many are protected appellations and reflect the origin of the beer rather than a style those yes. monasteries could brew any style they choose, but the ones described in this category are those that are most commonly associated with brewing tradition. That's good. That makes sense. Thank yes, you, BJCP. It, right. For it definitely clarifies. So on that note, why don't we just start out with a little bit of history um, of Belgian beer? There's a lot of history when it comes to all these breweries and, and all the wars and destruction and rebuilts and everything they went through and if you really want to dive into some really fun stories brew like a monk is where i pulled most of the information for um the podcast today it's a really good book it's um a good read lots of stories it's not it's not like a textbook or anything like that it's just really nice takes you through it but um i have a really funny i will stop interrupting you and you're um, fine like 
throwing this conversation off the tracks, but uh, when I was still working as a contract attorney and I was studying for my Cicerone exam, at lunch, I would read whatever, you know, whatever beer books that I was studying at the time. And I went through a phase, I think everybody goes through phases where like you get one meal that you really, really like, and that's what you eat like a lot of. (laughs) And so I really, really liked this uh, Trader Joe's like frozen, um, it was like paneer, like maybe it was like maybe tikka paneer with like spinach basmati rice. And that's what I was eating for lunch every day. And I was eating it for lunch every day at the same time that I was reading the brew like a monk. <laughs> so I have the biggest Pavlovian response when I go to open this beer or this book where I'm like, man, I really need some paneer and spinach basmati rice from Trader Joe's like right now. And it's yeah. So that's a, just again another another it's fact a really good me. point. Like <laughs> not to go off subject more, but like when Jen and I took this Aruxo off flavor class or any Cicerone training really at all, or off flavor training, they'll tell you, you know, stay with me while I'm, while you're like, while I'm talking about this one off flavor, don't deviate and like smell or taste other off flavors because you're going to associate that in your mind with what Mm -hmm. I'm talking about. And it will later mess you up. And it's a perfect example of like, Hey, maybe for me, for beer and food, I just need to start, you know, we're going to go to Munich next week and I'm just going to eat schnitzel and drink German beer. And, you know, maybe that's what I need to start doing. Like make sure I match things. So I don't F anything up in my subconscious. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, for master Cicerone is a lifestyle y'all it's a lifestyle, (laughs) but I mean, Belgian beer and like that, that, um, whatever the premiere was, it had some really good sauce with it. Um, but yes, that's like, it, it would have been a good pairing, but yeah, it's funny how our brains, um, brains always make thing. those connections when I was and one last story, I promise I will stop. But when I was in high school, I was in like the city honors orchestra. And of course we were always playing, um, classic music and at the time or classical music. And at the time, um, was, I think it was Panera by then, but the, like the most exposure I had had to classical music besides like band practice was eating <laughs> at Panera. So every time I went to rehearsal for like orchestra rehearsal, I was like, man, I really want Panera. <laughs> God, Panera is awful. It's worst. Yeah. It was much better back in the day when it was fun. <laughs> fact, it was St. Louis bread company um, back in the day and ah. much better then. But yeah, you. like same, same thing. Like one of just one of those weird connections that yeah. when I would be in orchestra, I'd be like, I'm going to have to stop and get like this soup and sandwich combo on my way home. Cause <laughs> I'm so hungry for it. So yeah, when I read brew, like a monk, I get this overwhelming urge to like, my brain is like, okay, brew, like a monk time for Indian food. And- yeah. <laughs> well, so not, anyway, I will not let the you- worst, not the worst pairing. <laughs> right. I will let you continue. Okay, let's dive into a little bit of history. There's so much history. There's not time for all of it, but, you know, I'll point out some really cool things that happened and and why things are the way they are today because of it. But so we're talking about just like every other beer style, um, beers being brewed at home. You know, there's a few small monasteries. There's monasteries can like range from like a house to like maybe a farm to like everyone's kind of brewing their own beer for their own monastery. Um, So the year 530, the rule of St. Benedict, sorry, St. Benedict is written. And to this day, this remains 
the reason why monks brew and sell beer. So it's called on monks to be self-sufficient through their own labor, which also required them to offer and also required them to offer hospitality to travels. So at the time, this actually made beer production or wine production um, essential because they needed to provide something for travelers to drink and water was unsafe. Beer was the more popular choice, which is why beer was started to be brewed, not wine. But so at one time, there was about 600 monasteries in Europe, but what really started to set them apart was their scale and method production. So we see starting, some of them start to get big and some of them maybe fizzle out or join together or, you know, stop brewing at their home and just buy beer from the monastery. Um, so there was Charlemagne and his followers promoted the Benedict way of life and monastery brewing. And this, so this is going on for about 300 years and it's, you know, be, Beer is just being brewed at the monasteries for um, travelers, for the monks. And eventually they start to like um, produce beer for like the town and other guests and noblemen. And they start a uh, monastery brewery plan is drawn for the St. Gall Monastery, and this is in 1820, and this provides a blueprint for other monasteries. So this is kind of cool because the plan called for a monastery to have three brew houses, and one would be making beer for guests, a second brew house would be making beer for the brothers or, or the monks, and a third would be making beer for the pilgrims or the poor. Um, guests and noblemen and royal officers off, like drank beer that was made from wheat and barley mostly, and then the others consumed ones that were made from oats. Uh, and this persisted throughout the Middle Ages and Renaissance. Um, then up about that point, they started to just use one brewery and then started to make different strength beers from the second and third runnings. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting. Like, that's such a huge demand to want to have three brew houses. Yeah. It, yeah. And especially because it's not like you're making like gluten-free where you have to have a different oh, yeah. house yeah and from what i remember it, reading they're not super small they're not huge but like we're talking maybe like 10 barrel the way you know things are today you know i don't know seven hectoliter right. whatever it is no that and, is a really good point because if you if for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with what a brew house looks like like this is three different brew houses that are probably identical you know, the, it uses like the same. Yeah, it seems it uses the exact same equipment. Like you brew all of these different beers in the exact same way. The ingredients and maybe even like the style of brewing are what's different about it. But you don't need. Yeah. Like I, I have one homebrew system. I can brew all kinds of beer on that one homebrew system. I don't have a homebrew system for like high ABV beers. A homebrew system for beers that use oats and a different homebrew system for like oh, four ridiculous. people I guess like you just need yeah. one system <laughs> <What does it laughs> no you must not drink the beer that comes out of the poor people system right. if you're if you're a royal right but yeah so they definitely had a you know limit or, or a system a uh, what's it called a status system of you know people and that was reflected on your beer um, I think eventually I they probably maybe realized how unnecessary that was and to start it using you know party guile beers doing the second and third runnings to make different beers and there's an idea that maybe even the terms double and triple might have grown from this practice um double and triple i mean it's a very very reasonable argument to make 
that's where the name comes from, but it does mean other things when it comes to the beer style that we'll go over. Um, so, you know, there is over the next, I don't know, a couple hundred years, 800 years, there are lots of, you know, there's wars, there's times where monks had to flee their, um, their monastery go, you know, cause and go find other monasteries. And it seems like there's a lot of this going on with, you know, b- abandoning monasteries, rebuilding. I'll just kind of start from a little bit from the beginning of that. The, in 19, oh, sorry, 1098, the order of sister, I can't say it, <laughs> say it again. Cistercian. In 1098, the order of Cistercians. <laughs> <laughs> This is becoming one of those words. Sorry, y'all. Yeah. For those of you listening, Rachel and I. We just took a minute to. (laughs) to, Like we wanted to look up the pronunciation to make sure we were saying it correctly. And now we've said it so many times that when you say say it the right way, it doesn't sound correct. (laughs) Okay. It's like umbrella. Okay. Umbrella, umbrella, umbrella. All right. Um, So the point I'm trying to make is that in the beginning at 530, we have the rule of St. Benedictine as written. And this is like, this is what monks are going to do. And now in 1098, the order of Cistercian, Cistercian. sorry, it's never going to happen. It's like Cistercian. Okay. The order of Cistercian. There. (laughs) Cistercian. All right. The order of Cistercian is founded. All right. Now this is to promote a stricter set of rules than the Benedictines were using. Um, And eventually became known as uh the the separation of so we have some benedictines that are going to follow these rules and some that don't and eventually the separation they became known as white monks in contrast to the traditional benedictines who wore black i don't know if like that's still the case today or not i remember when i was at orville seeing a monk walk around Mm -hmm. oh my god i think he was wearing white i honestly couldn't even tell you um but he was did not work at orville he was there enjoying himself in the gardens because anyone that worked there you are not going to see right like you can't see these monks you can try can you imagine if your job required you to wear white all day i I would have an anxiety attack i couldn't do it (laughs) i i would i would be like no i'm good i'm gonna say benedictine because that way you don't see like all the food that i drop on myself every day (laughs) so this new order was founded um then you know we have this separation of white monks and and then ones that were black and then we have the cistercian monks rescued the orval monastery abandoned in the by the benedict order so orval is kind of cool orval has is like the youngest and oldest trappist brewery at the same time so it was first founded in 1070 by Benedictines, and then it was abandoned shortly after. It was reestablished in 1132 by the Chaucerstons, and then in 1628 is their first actual record of brewing. So they weren't brewing then, or actually, that's not true. They probably were brewing a couple years before that, but this is the first record that we have. So then the French and the French Revolution sacked it in the 1790s, and then it was then rebuilt again in 1926. So this Orval has gone through a lot. And if you walk through the, um, like, if you go to the monastery, they have the old buildings, like, still there that were ruined in the 
war so it's like the ruins it's like hardly any of them are an actual brewery and that's where you actually walk through and then one of the cool things about orval is they have their their well to their spring water on there as well like in the area where you can walk through and so there's a legend so the the area that orval is located in is called the valley of gold and there's a legend has it that the princess Matilda gave Orval its name when her wedding ring fell into this lake in the valley and she prayed for its return. Once she prayed, at once a trout rose from the surface with the ring and Matilda exclaimed, truly, this place is Valley of Gold. <laughs> and so she established the monastery on that site. And Orval has actually uh, a logo of a trout coming out into a ring that they have like trademarked as one of their logos so if you see orval and a fish on their logo that is where that came from yeah and that's um one thing that i will add uh as we're going through like some of this history it's all very high level we could make an entire podcast about like trappist and abbey and belgian beers on its own and like have enough material to sustain us for several years doing episodes. Oh, yeah. So all of this is super, super high level. And there's so like so much depth and there's so much and there's so many cool everything. stories. Like right. I, I skipping over a lot of like history, like markers, but um, there's just so much, there's so much, I mean, monks have been brewing beers. Oh my God. For hundreds and thousands forever. And, you know, they went, they, they still do it today. So like there's, mm-hmm. there's a huge, there's just so much And reading this, this brew, like a monk book too, you'd see like how incestual all these monasteries mm-hmm. in Belgium at least are, they really rely on each other. They're actually all they're founded by each other. Right. Um, yeah. They so, supply like Westmall supplies yeast to several of them. Oh yeah. You know, St. Bernardus used to brew all of West Flatteran stuff. Uh, so yeah, there's there it is a very like small community. So we have um, you know through 1098 up until like you know 1650 we have Orvalos being overall was you know uh, resurrected and then abandoned by the Benedictine order. The Cistercian monks later took over at the Rochefort monastery, which was previously occupied by nuns, and then around 1656. Seeking a purer living of the St. Benedictine, there's another even now more stricter order of Caesarian begins at La Trappe, and this is becoming known as Trappist. So La Trappe, which is uh, Koningshoven, is the uh, name of the abbey, I believe, Koningshoven, is uh, actually in the Netherlands. But at the time, I don't think there were uh, separation of Fran- France. France and Belgium and Netherlands. So it was all right. one big area. Um, so now we have La Trap and it's becoming known as Trappist. And this is where we start to get the word Trappist for our beer. Um, so the abbot who started this monastery initiates even more stricter rules for monks. He goes back to the old set of rules, including daily manual labor, silence and seclusion and um, abstaining from meat. Uh, monks no longer follow this, but at the time, it elevated the importance of beer, which provided vitamins needed for a daily diet. So that's one of the, <laughs> one of my examples of cool things coming out of suppression. <laughs> like in our check locker episode. <laughs> Sorry. It's not cool. Suppression is not cool. But, <laughs> but 
But uh, so 1790, we have the French Revolution government suppresses all the monasteries and confiscates all their property. So monks were either guillotined or guillotined, guillotined, (laughs) (laughs) or they escaped into exile or they abandoned the religious status. Um, We had one example. uh, Abbot from La Trappe fled France with 21 monks and set up a community in Switzerland which they eventually even abandoning that fleeing further to Russia, eventually to make their way back down to France and settle in a monastery that is now in the country of Belgium. So, I mean, they were, I mean, there's like, like Jen was saying, we could, I could do a whole episode about that particular pile of monks going to (laughs) Switzerland and Russia and back to France. It was so much going on and, and monks, unless they abandoned their religious status in the beginning are not going to abandon their religious status. Now they're going to continue to do what they're going to do. So um, eventually in 1830, Belgium declares its independence from the Netherlands. Um, monks at West, uh, 1836 monks at West mall start uh, begin brewing in 1839 brewing begins at West veteran, which established as a monastery five years earlier. So just because they started as a monastery doesn't mean they were brewing. And if you Google search monasteries in the world, there's a lot, but not all of them brew. So when we're talking about monasteries in this discussion, we're only talking about ones that brew. So if we say there's only, what is this, seven monasteries now? or so, No, no, there's more than that that brew beer. But so after doing this uh, Google search about Trappist breweries, it, you know, they don't all brew beer. I'm sorry, I should say monasteries, not breweries, Trappist monasteries. They don't all brew beer, but there's a good amount Um Growing, I said growing up, but learning about beer, you know, in 2004, 2005, 2006, when I started learning about beer, you know, I was taught that there were seven monasteries. Yeah, I remember it being seven. Yeah. Yeah. So, and there was a Kell, Westmall, West Veteran, Rochefort, Orval, Chimay, and Koningshoven. Koningshoven is in the Netherlands. But I found a little article from 2001 says January 2001 Alkel lost their appellation as of January 2021 due to no living monks and Jen you, you mentioned that might have been the second time that happened to them um you know I, I will have to check I know that there's at least one brewery maybe it's Rochefort there's been one brewery that lost yeah that appellation and then got it back yeah because um, I have don't to remember have who it is and if you don't have monks you lose it Right. But that they didn't lose it because they didn't have monks. Um, Got it. I, I forgot why. Got it. Hopefully they didn't make someone mad. Like, You're out. <laughs> but I thought, I thought, I just think that's really interesting because of course I didn't really think about the fact that you could lose it. Of course you can lose it if you're not going to do it anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't say that Okel is not a Trappist product right now to me as a beer person, I'd be like, no, that's a Trappist brewery. You go there. And I bet you they'll have another monk soon and <laughs> get it back. Or maybe they won't. They also didn't start brewing till like 1998, Akel, and um, was, was a monastery long before that. Yeah. So looking up, I knew that there was the one brewery that had lost its certification. That was actually the trap, which is the Koenig Chauvin. Uh, they were decertified as a Trappist brewery between 1999 and 2005, but they apparently there was a dispute with the International Trappist Association. Um, oh. So they resolved that and were recertified in 2005. Interesting. I wonder what that was. All right. But yeah, moving on 
there's so much history, all these uh, monasteries opening up, they send like, like one establishes itself and they'll send monks from that monastery to open up the new one or start brewing at the other one. Um, even like when Elkel lost a, a head brewmaster at one point, a, a, head, a brewer from Rochefort came over to take over the brewing. So seems like they all got each other's backs, which is mm-hmm. nice. Um, a couple other things I just thought were interesting. And it's not really too much about the history, but just the way that these beers kind of separate themselves like West Mall produces a double and a triple with separate mashes but West Veteran makes their Westy 8 and their Westy 12 as a party guile um, some of these breweries name their beers like by color or um, like alcohol level which we saw was kind of common like check loggers too like they mm-hmm. the way they distinguish these beers so like Chimay has its red it's it's red, which is its premier, which is his double. Chimay white is the six cents, which is his triple. Chimay blue, it's his grand reserve as a Belgian dark strong ale. So if you see Chimay red, white, and blue, like you, you associate those colors with these beers. Um, a lot of times they use the color of the caps as the beer bottles to identify the beers offers for sales. Um, like West Federn doesn't even have labels on their bottles. They just use the caps. So they'll have That's like a different color move, caps. isn't it? Yeah, it makes That's a total baller move. To it just really like, just, nah, I give we don't zero need to, Fs. Man. Yeah, we don't you want need my to, beer. We don't now, need to label our beer so you know what it is. So we could just it. talk about West Veteran for a second because it is fucking awesome. It is. Now, don't get me wrong. Is this the best beer in the world made? No. Because, like, there's so many great beers. You can't say, like, this is the best one ever. But right. the history, the nostalgia, the, the exclusiveness, the. I mean, it really does put it up there. So if you want this beer one, you're not supposed to be able to buy it in the United States. You sometimes you can find it, but like typically to go buy this beer, you go make an appointment at the brewery where you can buy a case. Now you can also uh, go to their cafe and they will have bottles of beer there that you can drink. And usually the guest store is open and you can buy bottles to go from there. Yeah. That's been more recent, I think. The day we were there, they had uh, West Flutter and 12 for sale. Yes. And I think the 12 and maybe the six yeah. for sale, like in the, in the gift shop. So we got, it'll be very and- random. Yeah. They'll be like, do we have the beer? You can buy the beer. If we don't have the beer, you can't buy the beer. Right. And, and we that's were, the, that's we the were, was for me too. We were going to be there anyway. And so it just happened stands like, oh, they have it today. So now we can buy a six pack to bring home with us. But yeah, Rachel's uh, correct. When we were there it's, you know, it's in the countryside and we, we were there like on this beautiful day and they have like this really nicely manicured, uh, oh, these really nicely manicured grounds. And, you know, you're sitting outside, like drinking your West Flutterin out of, you know, proper glassware. And there are people like going by on the road on bikes and things. Yeah. And like, you just sit there and you're just like, this is it. Yeah. Like, this yeah. is the life. And the what monastery an is like right across the road. You can't go in there, but the cafe you can go. And then like Popperines is like right down the road, like the town mm-hmm. of Popperines. So you can go take a bike ride through all the hop fields. Love it. Yeah. Love it's, it. it's gotta it's go. Very, yeah. Everyone's got to go. And just sitting there and being like this, like probably top five moment in my entire life. I can tell you if you travel to Belgium, do your research and figure out which breweries you can just show up to and which you can't, because it is not a lot of breweries that you can show up to. Like Chimay has a tourist experience, like, like a tap room experience you can walk into or Vol has a little nice, um, 
rural uh ruins area of their old buildings that you can walk around and they have a shop where you can have beer and eat cheese and stuff like that uh kel i don't know i can't i didn't go and i don't remember what looking into it rochford i don't know but i don't think it was easy i remember because i remember being like orval or rochford and rochford was like not easy or i could be wrong about that i could be very wrong about rochford i have to look that up there but like there's other breweries that we went like for hagey we got a private tour for just Jeff and I, and we met with the brewer and he drank our pilot brewing beer. And the only way we were able to do that is because we like, there was not an option. You had to like find the third party tour who set up this with him. And it's like very hard to do in some cases and very easy to do in other cases, but yes. Um, so, shameless, shameless yeah. plug. I, if anybody is going to Belgium, I do have a friend who is is Belgian and lives there, <laughs> um, who is also a brewer. And when we went, he actually does tours of breweries nice. and for, for people. And so he is also the guy that Duvel uses when they send, you know, people from mm. Gang Boulevard. Um, that's who he, they use and he's awesome. So yeah, he is, um, I've referred several people to him. So just if anybody's going to Belgium and would like something like that, he did, exactly what Rachel said, where he knew which breweries we could go to when. And he also uh, like arranged for us to be on a brewery tour of St. Bernardus, which was also the yeah. same week that they opened their rooftop bar, which was amazing because yeah. you're on this rooftop bar and it's like, there's their barley fields. If you look off to the right, if you look off to the left, there's their hop fields. And then they're like, oh yeah, those two, and like, there's hills, France. Those two hills <laughs> yeah. over there, that's France. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I went, I did that too. Before they had the the rooftop bar that would have been awesome quick yeah, note on st bernardus actually used to brew beer for west veteran until you know the like be becoming trappist brewery became solidified where they couldn't do that outside of the walls anymore so st bernardus will claim that they're at at eight and 12 are just like westy eight and 12 mm -hmm. they are as, as yeah. far as i know it's supposed to be the, the exact same, same recipe, recipe which you can get here in the states Right. And I know some people who have done like side-by-sides, like blinds of those. And like, it's, it's a coin toss from what I've heard. You know, some yeah. people are like, oh yeah, everybody likes St. Bernardus better. It's like, who, that's a cool, I think that's a cool thing to do just, you know, for your own experience. But yeah, like Rachel said, like, is it the best beer in the world? It's very, very good. It comes with a lot of history, but the best beer in the world is whatever you think the best beer in the exactly. world is. Um, I think we should switch over and just dive in a quick overview of the four styles that mm -hmm. are Trappist or monastic now, if you will. Yeah. Um, so just real quick, we have our Trappist single, which is going to be the lowest alcohol out of the four lowest alcohol range. And it's going to be a light blonde beer. Um, it's going, all of these beers are typically relatively simple on the malt side. They're very much about a showcase of the yeast profile. So a blonde is probably going to, you know, I wouldn't, do more than like a pilsner malt and you know maybe some weed or something for head retention it's gonna be very simple base beer where a showcase of the yeast character is going to shine through so we're these beers should have like spicy phenolics fruity undertones um complex yet simple um so it's funny because when if i make a trappist single which i have and it says trappist single on the can I literally like sell so much more of it if I call it a Belgian blonde, which are two different styles of beer. Right. <laughs> the Trappist single would be like a little bit more hoppy, more drier than a Belgian blonde would be. Um, 
maybe a tad bit more alcohol depending on the style but so these are supposed to be easy drinking beers nothing that's going to finish you know nothing super high in alcohol we're looking at the range of like uh, what 4.8 to 6 percent again according to bjcp guidelines from 2015 if you go to Belgium, they don't follow these ranges that we have. Like they brew a blonde, they brew a brune, they brew a triple or double or dark strong or a wheat or this rye beer with juniper or like they literally just do whatever they want and they call it whatever they want. Like you go over there, all these styles don't really exist the way you know it. Like they do, but you don't need, you don't really have to worry about the technical, I guess, sides of things. You just worry about what the brewer wants you to worry about. Um, so a Belgian double is going to be kind of a next step up in alcohol level. We're talking about like six to 7%. Now we're adding some more darker malt characteristics, maybe some Munich, some Bistic, some aromatic, um, crystal malt. Isn't like a typical use in the early days of Belgian. They might've used more of like a caramel syrup. Um, I think that's one thing in my reading to, it's important to point out is like candy syrup. If you're brewing and you say you're an American brewer and you start brewing these Belgian beers, you can look up a lot of recipes, whereas Americans will start to use this like rock candy sugar, like this hard rock candy sugar. Yeah, that's not very that's not a very Belgian thing to do. That's, yeah, that's invert sugar. Yeah. So the candy sugar. Um, sometimes I, so I just like to point out, like you might see the word candy sugar spelled with an I. And it might say syrup or sugar. And depending on who wrote this recipe, they could be talking about two totally different things. Um, for me, when I'm making Belgian beer, I've always used the syrup, the candy syrup. Um, I've never actually used hard rock sugar. You can. But at the same time, um, if I like a more residual sweetness leftover, I'll use a syrup. If I like a more drier beer, like in the Trappist Single, I will use turbinado sugar. Not very characteristic of Belgian brewing historically, but. It's cool. Sorry, I got a little off off topic ingredients. So we have our Trappist single low blonde, AB, low ABV blonde ale, Belgian double. We have some more malt complexity, darker color, copper, amber color, darker fruit notes, um, plum, raisin, fig. But nothing should be very overwhelming. Everything should be blend together. And all these beers are going to be more malt forward than hoppy and hops are just used to balance the malt. Belgian triple is going to be lighter. Um, like a single will be. And again, an example of, I think Van Steenberg Goodendrock describes its beer as an imperial triple and it's dark in color, which can be very confusing because as a beer person, you kind of associate a Belgian triple as being light in color. Mm-hmm. And this is just a good example of his Belgian brewing doing what they want to do. So don't I just point that out is to say not you know you go out looking for these beers is can be really hard to wrap your head around especially if you're looking um for commercial examples to study with like quadruple dark strong ale you know those are gonna be pretty synonymous too so I say this taking it all with a grain of salt you know Belgian dark strong ale we're talking about like a you know higher alcohol than the rest of the styles darker malt character dark fruit characters, higher alcohol warmth. Um, But all of these beers should be relatively easy to drink despite the high alcohol. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be. Right. They can be sneaky. Yes. It's a good good example. Yeah. It's a good example of the style if um, you are surprised by how quickly you feel a buzz from them because you don't taste the alcohol. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
so this is so funny because we're talking about Trappist Dale or Trappist monasteries, all the beers that they brew. They're very similar in kind of, they stay consistent with one another with this, you know, having a blonde, having a brune, having a triple, having a high gravity dark. But then we have Orval. Jen, would you like to just take us through the beer Orval and how it's so different from all these other styles, but it's still um, monastic ale? Um, monastic. Ale? <laughs> um, no, let me get to it. Um, no. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I can. Um, so with Orval, it is, Orval is its own thing. And I think Orval is a really good example of exactly what Belgian brewing is like where like you if you look through the BJCP guidelines you won't see Orval listed anywhere right because it is its own style and it's uh it has it's this very distinct orange color and it's got a very uh very pronounced Britannomyces character in it but with Orval it's kind of like a saison but it's it is yeah, I mean it's its own thing. It it's kind like of a defines... pale ale that's dry hopped. Uh, yeah, I can see you get that Cesar character. I know, I know it's a weird thing to kind of describe. I think I always in my serving days described it as a Belgian pale, dry hopped pale ale with bread and ices. Right. So Orval really defies a concise explanation. Yeah. And I one of the times I was doing a blind tasting. It's because again, Orval is one of those things, particularly for Cicerone. This is not official, you know, Cicerone language or anything, but you're highly unlikely to see that on an exam because it doesn't fit into a beer style. And when I was at the height of my studying, I did a blind panel and had Orval in like in the lineup. Um, but it was, you know, it just wasn't in the scope of, of reference for me because it's not something that's tested explicitly on any of the Cicerone exams. And I tasted it and remember like going to ask my husband to be like, did you taste these beers before you poured them? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, and they all tasted okay. And, he said, yeah. and I was like, one of these beers is infected. And he was just like, yeah, it's Orval. And, but yeah, like I, like it wasn't you even think on about... my radar exactly, because I was so... like, so like, Triple, I'm studying single, the styles, yeah. commercial examples. And yeah, and then had Orval, but man, is it good. And Orval is one of those good, I think most of us are moving away from having beer sellers and like saving beer because like, yeah. as we've seen, like the world could very easily end any day now. So just drink <laughs> the beers, like the perfect day to drink that special beer is today, right? Like mm -hmm. make that beer be the thing that makes your day special. But Orval is one of those beers that is really good when you think about it. If you see it somewhere on a shelf, grab it and just tuck it away somewhere until you have like a few years worth and taste them side by side. Because since it does have that Britannomyces in it, the character yeah. of Orval is going to change over time. And I want to say a, a lot of the recommendations are like around when Orval is like five years old is really when it's at its peak. But like we were saying before, you know, the best beer in the world is whatever you think the best beer in the world is. Grab some Orval over a period of, you know, of a few years and sit down and taste them. It's also a good education in how Britannomyces can change the character of a beer. Oh, yeah. If you go years. to Orval at the cafe, you could drink young Orval versus. That's awesome. Regular Orval. One yeah. of the cool things about Orval, like 
because of the Brett character and, you know, the Brett is in the bottle, it's bottle conditioning. And as we get those over here in the U.S., that alcohol level is actually increasing a little bit. So the Orval label has two different labels for Belgium and the States. It actually says that in the um, States, it says that the beer is 6.9 and in Belgium, it says the beer is 6.2. And that's still allow for the increase, uh, the small increase of alcohol that Brett will will give when it consumes extra sugars in there and also there are abc laws well i say abv i just mean to say abc ab abc is local controls my alcohol abv you know you should know abv laws in belgium um so here in the united states if i say that this beer is 5.3 i'm legally allowed to be wrong on the label within 0.03 variants um it's one it's a whole one percent for beers in belgium and wow. I, I believe it's because of bottle conditioning oh yeah and that's um i'm glad you said that because one of the things i know you have in your notes that i definitely wanted to touch on before we wrap up is the bottle conditioning being a defining characteristic of, oh, of yeah. trappist beers and this, I say this because, um, and I think we've talked about bottle conditioning a little bit on, on some of our episodes before, but there's no forced carbonation, right? They're not yes. injecting CO2 into any of these. And when I was in Belgium, and this is the thing um, Rachel and I were talking about before we started recording of like not going someplace and seeing something like going someplace like Belgium and seeing something and being like, oh, that's a cool thing. And then later learning like how important like this building or whatever was, um, and being like, man, I really wish I would have known that I would have like appreciated that more. So when I was in Belgium, it took me a good couple of days to realize that I was getting served all of these Trappist beers from the bottle because they're all bottle conditioned. Yeah. (laughs) And like the first couple of days I was there, I was like, well, I came all the way here and I can get bottles at home. (laughs) And then was like, you stupid idiot. Like they're they're always bottle conditioned. They're bottle conditioned always, even here. And like, then I was just like, oh my God, I am so And I'm saying this out loud to all of you now, because (laughs) this is a safe space where we can be vulnerable. But I remember just thinking like, I am so glad I did not say this out loud to my husband or my friends I was traveling with, because (laughs) they would be like, you're, you're trying to be an advanced Cicerone and (laughs) you want like Trappist beers on draft. (laughs) You can't, there's one Chimay Six Sets you can now get on draft in the United States. You can get west mall um i think west mall double west mall does one that you can get on draft but yeah then you get it on draft and you're just like well this is fine yeah like it's it's still west mall but it's like it's the part of the experience is the bottle conditioning then honestly around on the finished beer around here in charlotte i would get so excited to see that on draft because all no offense to everyone here listening to this, but there's not many places that just store bottles of beer correctly. Right. Like, and when I say that, I want my beer in the cooler at all times. I know what aging does when it's on the shelf. I get that it's not going to kill me, but I want my beer as fresh as possible. So if I did see that, I would be so excited because I know that keg <laughs> has been kept cold. I assume Hopefully. the keg has been kept cold. Yeah. Better chance than a bottle. Now, it depends where you are, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, that's, um, that is something that took me a couple of days to like bridge that gap of what you're reading between like reading and actual lived experience to realize like, oh, this is why I don't see these beers on tap. It's because they're not 
Yeah. That's not, that's not the point of them. Uh, so yeah, the re-fermentation in the bottle, the bottle conditioning, that's a really important thing to remember. And if you go to Belgium, don't be um, upset for a couple of days, like I was about why you're getting served beer out of bottles. Yeah. And you know, it's also <laughs> a good point. Like if you are looking for Belgian beers and bottles and you see the sediment on the bottom of the bottle, it's okay. Like don't associate that with being like a bad bottle or at the same time, when you go to pour, don't rouse it, like pour your beer off and right. keep that little bit of sediment on the bottom of the bottle, but recognize that as not being like a sign as bad beer. Right. Unless right. it's like, you know, an American IPA or something. I was about to say, unless it's <laughs> here, there are a couple of breweries. There's here. a couple of breweries. That I won't name. There's a couple of breweries local to Atlanta that so many of their beers have so much sediment in them and it's not, it's not bottle conditioning. It's no, just for filtration and, and yeast yeah. and, and I'm rushing, surprised it hasn't exploded. <laughs> rushing your, rushing your production process and um, giving your yeah. customers a flawed beer that they don't know until after there's a couple American breweries that bottle condition like Sierra Nevada mm-hmm. and Allagash, uh, maybe some more, but for the most part, there's a big difference between uh, unfiltration and bottle conditioning. Right. Exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, if you're getting like a double IPA from a can and there's visible particulate in your beer, that is that not is, can that's conditioning. Not conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> that's not that's what's not happening. Bottle, yeah. That, that is not Trappist. In that is just anyway. crap beer. <laughs> All right. Well, let's wrap this up. Um, like we said a couple of times, Trappist beers, we could create like a spinoff podcast and have material for years to talk about the history and the techniques for each one. Uh, but like Rachel said, the brew like a monk is a fantastic, fantastic book. I would say if you are interested in learning more into doing a deep dive on the history on each one of the, the uh, main Belgian monasteries, Trappist monasteries, get brew like a monk. And it's also, it's one of those, this is one of those brewing books. And I think we've said this before on the podcast that it's just a good book to read. Mm-hmm. Like it's engaging, it's entertaining. Yeah. And um, it's by Stan Hieronymus. He does a very good job of, of giving you information in a way that keeps you wanting to read more. Yeah. Um, so it's just a, like, it's, I never mind reading this book, right? Like there's some brewing books that I'm just like, okay, I'm going <laughs> to read water again because yeah. you, but it's just like, water in brewing beep boop bop and uh brew like a monk is just a very engaging book so even if you're not a huge huge beer person you're still really going to enjoy the history and everything in this book and then the other book i would recommend is the great beers of belgium by michael jackson the beer hunter every time we talk about this rachel and i hold the book up to each other like we don't know what you see right right (laughs) it's like show and tell um for this audio medium that none of you will see but um, (laughs) The Great Beers of Belgium by Michael Jackson is just is, I mean, Michael Jackson is, again, when he is highly renowned beer writer, the first time I read some of his stuff, I was like, oh, I get it. I get why people say he is because he is he's immensely talented and makes beer really fun and really enjoyable. So the Great Beers of Belgium is also a really good book to read if you're interested in learning more about the Trappist breweries and such. So with that, we will wrap it up. I think we have some new Patreons to thank. We do. So before we go, let's thank our 
Patreons, we have um, thank you to Rex, Kinsey, Chris, Jesse, Gabby, Maggie, Sandra, Mike, Angelica, Scott, Stephen, and Stacy. We appreciate all of our listeners. We especially appreciate our um, patrons who get um, a lot of benefits for helping support us and helping keep the podcast going. I know we've said this in our last couple of episodes, but please, for anyone listening, if you can take a couple of minutes and rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast, that makes a huge difference. It helps people who aren't, you know, kind of in our, our little pod of beer people learn about our podcast, and we definitely appreciate that. So if you have any questions, any comments, any suggestions for anything, feel free to reach out. You can reach us at falsebottomgirls at gmail.com. You can find us at falsebottomgirls on Facebook and Instagram, and you can also visit our website, falsebottomgirls.com, and um, we have a contact form there. So yeah, I think, Rachel, would you like to close us out with your very best Trappist monk chant? Sounds like a dial-up modem. <laughs> well, I didn't get a chance to brush up on my monk chant. I don't know how it's supposed to sound. Right. I think it needs to go it's deeper. Like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I'm t- really off. Like, home, home, like that. That sounds right. I mean, if I woke up and heard those noise, I would think monk. Well, actually, I would, um, be, I, I would yeah. think a lot of weird things. <laughs> 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 and heard those noises, maybe yeah. I would think about Yeah, if I woke up and heard those noises, um, Monk would be real far down the list. <laughs> this has been False Bottom Girls, and we make the Bruin world go round. <laughs>